0: Hello. Welcome to the Remnant Rising Podcast. I'm Tyson Thompson. I'm back. I told you I'd be back. Uh, I put up the teaser v- about uh, 10 days ago, and here we are. Uh, took 10 days just to do some cleansing of the inner vessel. Uh, I went on a trip with my family, and uh, now it's time to start digging into this podcast. This is the one that I promised I would do on the character of Christ or the character of God. Uh, There are more to follow on this topic, but I have an absolute witness that everything that comes with regards to spiritual pursuit, not talking about religiosity, anybody who knows me knows that I'm very emphatic that religion and the religious fog, the religious veil is the biggest stumbling block to people pursuing Christ. So spirituality is the mark Um, with Christ, like a spiritual pursuit of Christ, not a religious pursuit of Christ. In fact, as I say that out loud, um, my wife sent me this quote. It was actually something that a friend of hers said to both of us when we were sitting uh, in a parking lot the other day. It says, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who've already been there. And man, do I love that. That was by Vine Delora Jr. Um, That is so true. Religion in general is the death of spirituality. Why? Because we put men or women or authority in position in between us and God. And religion has a purpose. You know, the religions of the world... To some degree or another have kept truths, kept libraries, right? It's a, it's a, it's a repository for information, but that information has little to nothing to do with the individual pursuit of spirituality. All that information does is introduce somebody to a deity or a God in order for them to pursue a personal relationship with that God that is the purpose of religion so I'm not going to throw all religion out the window and say it's worthless and doesn't serve a purpose it's a stepping stone and in the context of the LDS vernacular in my view and in God's view I'll just be bold and say that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the church that Joseph Smith restored is a stepping stone into that spiritual pursuit of godliness. If you don't believe me, go read about it. I don't have time to sit here and argue with the detractors. My Pharisees and Sadducees show up on a regular basis, and when I need to, I address them. But I'm here to address those that want deliverance. So I'm going to read that quote again because it's so powerful. Religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who've already been there. And guess what? I'm bold enough to say I've already been to hell and I've come back. So so why is it such a fundamental doctrine? Well, let's just quote Joseph Smith, the character of God. Why is it important? Joseph Smith said, and I quote, If man does not comprehend the character of God, he does not comprehend himself. Take a minute. Take a minute and let that sink in. If man does not comprehend the character of God, he does not comprehend himself. What a blessing. You could build an entire book, volumes of books, about the character of God and why it is so imperative to understand the character of God. Okay? Now... The character of Christ is replicit in scripture. It's there. We don't slow down enough to read it ourselves and go to Christ and have him help us interpret it so that we can see the truth for what it is. We don't. We want somebody else to can it, to put it inside of a of a talk and in a general conference talk, and we can read it and you know, then we can get our testimony from it and We Somebody cans it and puts it together, and that's what we want because we're naturally, the natural man is lazy, right? He wants somebody to give it to him on a silver platter. Well, that's good, as long as the person presenting the information is giving you truth. Well, what happens when we reach a critical phase like we're in right now, where Isaiah's words are being fulfilled? Isaiah said that in the last days, that the people in the church and really out of the church would be lined up with their spoon in hand, ready to eat the vomit of what people were telling them, what leaders were telling them, religious leaders and secular leaders or leaders in the, in the, in the world. And we're seeing that like people are literally just taking what they're given as truth and not actually seeking to find for themselves. Well, one of the biggest Pearls of Great Price is that quote from Joseph Smith regarding the character of God, regarding how if man does not comprehend the character of God, he does not comprehend himself. He just doesn't. He does not comprehend himself. And Joseph Smith said that if you do not receive knowledge, you cannot receive exaltation a man is saved no faster than he gains knowledge so if we don't have a knowledge a intimate detailed intense spiritual knowledge immovable knowledge the kind of knowledge that makes a benedict stand up and be burned the kind of the kind of knowledge that Christ had that he held on to and still holds on to but in his earthly plight that he held on to all the way the cross at Calvary. If we don't have that kind of spiritual knowledge of the character of God, we won't have the power sufficient to overcome all things as he's admonished us to. So why is the LDS version of Jesus in modern times, I will say that, so variant to the actual version of Jesus Christ? You know, that is a question that has plagued me and I don't know that I even am going to come up with a definitive answer other than this, Lucifer. That's my one word answer. Lucifer knows that in order to win the battle, even though he won't win, right? He needs to take the real Jesus away from people. And how does he do that? He does it through religion, always. We have these inspired beings that the God of the universe sends down to us and it doesn't matter what religion that is. These inspired beings, they come down, they teach us these amazing principles and what do we do? We turn it into a religion. And as soon as we turn it into a religion, the pursuit of spirituality ceases. The pursuit of a relationship with God ceases and he can slowly start pulling away the truths. Why don't the brethren in the church why don't church leaders talk very openly and emphatically anymore in detail other than a few talks given by Russell Nelson over the last few years about pursuing a personal and intimate and detailed and amazing relationship spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ why don't they it's because Lucifer has such a grasp on what is being taught, that we're literally seeing fulfillment of what Lucifer said he was going to do to teach the philosophies of men mingled with scripture. So I kind of feel like growing up in the church, and if this isn't your experience, then disregard this portion, that what I had come to know as Jesus was Jekyll and Hyde. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek because my initial early experiences with Jesus were amazing and powerful. And I did understand as a young child how dynamic he was, but then slowly the religious fog crept in and pretty soon the fog of war was upon me and I couldn't really discern the real Jesus. He was this misty figure always out of reach and if you feel that way and i felt the power of what i just said kind of go out like a shock wave just ruminate on that for a second is that the jesus that you know he's he's there he's this fuzzy figure you're not really sure if you want to be close to him because you're not really sure if he's just going to start whipping you because of all of your insecurities and all of your shortcomings and all of your failures you know he's jesus is really close to me when i'm doing good but when i'm doing bad Jesus is just over there flogging me with all of my shortcomings. And, you know, what is your version of Jesus? Because, you know, even a lot of the people that I'm talking with right now who are really struggling with current affairs, current events happening in the world, but mostly these people are very, very disturbed about what is happening inside of the church, about the things that the, that the leaders of the church are starting to say that really feed really well into the narrative of the world and the things that the world is saying, this woke culture that's starting to creep in this. And I don't don't care if that offends you, like the cancel culture, right? All of these things, like why is this, why is the, the vernacular of agenda 21 and agenda 2030 creeping out of not even creeping out of the mouths. There's a, there's a couple of leaders that are boldly proclaiming these things, as truth and they're genuinely trying to discern like where is truth I, you know I thought the church would never go astray well we can talk about that in later podcasts we're not here to talk about that today but let me help you understand something you won't make sense of any of anything that's happening anything if you don't learn to trust and embrace the real Jesus and my hope in this podcast today, however long it ends up being, I'm not even going to limit myself to time. My hope is that you can get to a place where you will begin to experiment upon the word and actually start to pursue that reinstatement of a relationship, the restoration of a relationship with a being who you've known for eons. This isn't, this isn't some foreign being that you're trying to develop a relationship. This is your best friend and he's standing there and he's been there your whole life. And the times when you felt him withdraw, it was actually you walking away because you would feel him close. You would love it. You would even express that to somebody else. Man, the Lord was just, and then boom, somehow in some way you get hit with shame, guilt or whatever. And you get sideways and you step away from the real Jesus. And so he's always at a distance in that fog. And then when the times he's really close, he's only there momentarily. And then he's gone again. Am I, am I preaching to the choir? Do you guys all get this? Are we all starring in the same movie? Okay, good. I hope so. I hope we're on a level. I hope we're in the same place of understanding of how we've been, how we've discerned Jesus because how of how he's been presented. So like I said, that has led us to this Jekyll and Hyde Jesus. He's really close to me and loving to me at at moments, very fleeting moments, and the rest of the time I feel distanced from him. And if that describes your relationship with Jesus, well, you're in luck because we're going to bust through a lot of those paradigms and we're going to clean up, we're going to clean house like Christ did in the temple so that real healing can begin. I wrote this down this morning. Um, it is now five o'clock. I've been up since about two thirty this morning. It's it's a good time for me to like, be able to square things away, to be able to study without interruption, um, and so sleep is an option at times for me. Um, but I was sitting there writing this morning, and I was writing. I wrote the real Jesus, and then right after that, I wrote. The real Jesus is glad you messed up. Take that to the bank. Say that over the pulpit on Sunday and see how that goes over in fast and testimony. Meaning the real Jesus is glad you messed up. And yet is that far from the truth? No brothers and sisters. It's not. I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ. That is truth. Jesus is glad you messed up because you have an opportunity to partake of the gift that he's given you. Can I use his words? What good is a gift if a man receiveth it not? Right? He's given you the gift of his atonement. It's there. And he's glad you messed up and he's not there looking to throw you out of the game when you've messed up. He's not there flogging you with your shortcomings. Religiosity is there flogging you with your shortcomings. Leaders in the church who act like they're God's gift to righteousness are flogging you with shame and guilt about how you don't measure up. The real Jesus is glad you messed up and he wants you to learn from it. You know, I have learned and I am learning and remembering, I should say, to apply this principle with my own kids. When they mess something up, I'm doing my best to be in a position so that when they mess up, they come to me and tell me. And then I'm like, well, awesome. And they're like, what? I'm like, awesome. Good. I'm glad you messed up. So let's talk about what you can learn from this. That's huge. That's a fundamental difference in the way to view Christ. So first and foremost, I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ. If you feel like you're a mess up, Jesus is up there saying, good. That's why I did what I did so that you can see and understand and grow from what you did. And he's not there to condemn you. If you don't believe me, here are his words again. When he was speaking to the Sadducees and Pharisees, he said, Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And and then he said, If I do judge, my judgment is just because I judge with the Father. But he's not, he didn't even come to the earth during his earthly sojourn to judge the people. He came to bring truth and provide an atoning sacrifice for you to come back into communion with heaven and Father and Mother. That's it. That's why he's here. So stop viewing him as your judge, jury, and executioner. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is excited that you messed up because he wants to take you by the hand and walk you forward. All right, so let's get into some interpersonal uh, qualities of Jesus. Jesus wept. Two words, a powerful verse found in John chapter 11. What do we have here? I borrowed that phrase from uh, John Eldridge. He says that a lot in his book. What do we have here? This is at the death of Lazarus. And John chapter 11, verses 33 to 35. And when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Lazarus's sister, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the next verse, verse 35, Jesus wept. Two of the most profound words in all of scripture, Jesus wept with compassion and love. And I also believe in the dynamic nature of Christ. Jesus wept because he saw a group of people who were hurting and in some way In that moment, not in some way, Jesus absolutely knew this was an opportunity to provide a miracle and healing for those people. So he was weeping out of compassion. He was weeping because he could feel what they were feeling and their sorrow and sadness. He was weeping for all of the deaths and all of the separations throughout all of eternity. And then the God who weeps was weeping because of the excitement that he had, that he was going to provide a miracle to bring these people into a state of shocked awakeness, where they're now alert to the spiritual world that exists beyond death. Then Jesus wept again and went off to be by himself when he found out that one of his best friends, probably his best friend, John the Baptist, was killed And it says in the account in scripture, in a couple of the accounts that he couldn't even get away. Like he tried to get away and the people were just following him. And so he had to feed them after giving them a sermon and then go by, be by himself. And then after he's by himself for a while, that's when he catches up with the brethren when they're on the boat. And that's when he invites Peter to walk on the water. I mean, he is... One miracle after another in his dynamic and powerful life. And he's not doing it as a show pony. He's not doing it to be amazing and great and, you know, and try to show how awesome he is. This is just Christ. This is who he is. This is how he operates. This is Christ. How about kindness? We talked about him weeping let's let's lead from weeping and and him being you know being compassionate into his kindness about the woman with the issue of blood he is walking he's so aware of his surroundings all the time so spiritually tuned in that I'm sure the brethren were asking him questions if you haven't seen the chosen series um, you know watch it but I remember at one point Christ is walking and they're just question after question after question. And he finally stops and he's like, look, guys, this is going to be a long journey. If you guys are so full of questions, he's like, how about you just sit back and be quick to observe and let's just, just watch what happens and learn from it. And, and I love that dynamic of Christ, but I'm sure with the, with the crowd thronging and he's walking through the streets of, of, uh, Jerusalem, he is a woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And he feels goodness leave him. He feels virtue leave him. He feels the power of his godliness drained for a momentary second because she received of that goodness and goes back and he compassionately crouches down and touches her. Now, there's been some emphasis placed on this lately, and I'm glad that in the Jewish culture, people that were... You know that had issues of blood or that were diseased were unclean and you don't touch those unclean things and what does jesus do over and over and over the character of jesus christ is to go to those quote unquote unclean things and touch them right he touches them he he reaches out he touches the leper he touches the blind man he touches the woman with the issue of blood and particularly with an issue of blood. I don't remember somebody was describing those Hebrew traditions and, um, and that was a very, 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 you know, bad thing to do. And she was healed says the fount of her blood did dry up from that moment on like, this is Jesus. He doesn't care what the current tradition, what the current culture, what the current whatever is he's there to minister to people through the dynamic nature of his godliness without reservation, without fear of judgment. He didn't care because he, he was there to deliver the people. You know, when he would stand and preach sermons and the Pharisees and Sadducees were constantly trying to interrupt, he didn't always give them heed. There were only, you know, a handful of times that he actually did rebuke them. And it was because he had a message because he wasn't there for them. He was there for those that were prepared to be delivered. And so that is the compassionate and kind version of Jesus, that he was willing to, to be persecuted to help other people. That is my Jesus. That's the Jesus that I worship. Okay. So that's all pretty heavy. Um, how about the playfulness of Jesus? You know, I had a discussion yesterday with a very good friend of mine, and we were talking about this portion of Jesus's character. And this brother is amazing. He is on track and on fire spiritually. And when I asked him, it, well, he just commented. He said, oh, I've never experienced the playful version of Jesus And I was like, oh my goodness, this is someone I've spent a lot of time with and a lot of we've, I mean, he's been there for me in hard times. I've been there for him in hard times. I mean, this is a brother we've been running, you know, and gunning for eons together. We know it and, and many, many lives and this brother you know, he, he had not in this mortal experience experienced the playfulness of Jesus. And so I related a couple of the stories I'm going to relate to you here from scripture to him. And I also related a personal story that I'll relate to you too, but that's tragic when we don't see that full dynamic of Jesus, that he loves to laugh. He loves to have a good time. He's happy. He's joyous, right? We, we look at his life and people ascribe it to arduous and hard and difficult. Yes. But like he took time to play with children, right? Why? Because he wanted to feel joy. He wanted the seriousness of his plight and his efforts to have a momentary pause so that he could enjoy things. And he enjoyed everything that he does and he still does. And if you don't believe me, if you haven't learned to hear his voice, or if even if you have... Go ask him to show you his playful side, and then wait and wait and watch, and he will deliver something that will make you laugh. If you don't believe me, here's a ver- here's a here's a story. So from from the New Testament. So after Christ dies, uh, John chapter 21 talks about how Christ, that the apostles go fishing, right? They're just. They're beside themselves. They do what we all do when, when the poop hits the fan, right? They go back to what's comfortable and for them, what was comfortable fishing, right? So that was what Peter said, I go fishing, right? And he goes out with the brethren and they're fishing and they're fishing and they fish all night and they don't catch anything. Now let's beckon back to when Christ first is introduced to Peter remember the story of how he came to the shore and asked them if they had any fish and they didn't. And then they cast in their nets and the fish, their nets were full, right? Like, okay. So here's the risen Lord, right? These men are fishing. And what does the risen Lord do, right? Does he come to the edge of the shore and go... Brethren, it is I, Christ, come to shore and I will help you to understand this resurrection and how your mission will be vital to the rest of humanity. No. The playfulness of Jesus has Jesus walking to the edge of the water, looking out at these brethren in a boat and saying, Uh, rather sheepishly, maybe, maybe with his hands in his pocket, kicking rocks, kind of like looking down for a second, looks up and goes, Hey, uh, you guys catch anything? I mean, John Eldridge does a beautiful job of depicting this in his book, beautiful outlaw. But, but I mean, this is the question that everyone asks me when I'm fishing, right? I'm fishing on the, on the banks of one of the rivers or lakes here in Northern Idaho. And somebody walks by and they're like, you catch anything, right? Right. Man, that's a frustrating question for somebody to ask too. It pisses you off if you haven't caught anything. If you had caught anything, oh, your first thing to do is to reach down in the water and and grab your fish and pull them up and hold them up and go, "Yep," you know. When you haven't caught anything, especially if you've been out all night, that is frustrating. And Christ walks up onto the shore and asks them, "Hey, you guys, catch anything?" have you any meat that is Jesus that is him being playful and then he stands there as chaos ensues because he asks them if they've caught anything they say no he tells them where to cast their nets they do and immediately they catch and then John I think it's John or James realizes it's Jesus and Peter in his confusion, and I believe that as I read these verses that this is absolutely what was happening. Peter, in his confusion, it says that he was naked, probably in his version of whatever skivvies were back then, underwear, right? He, was, he began looking for his coat and he puts his coat on and dives into the water. How much sense does that make? Like he was so excited, he's like, Oh, I got to grab my coat. Jesus is here. Puts his coat on like he's running out the door, but instead he dives into the water. Like, doesn't make any sense to me, right? And I'm sure that Christ is laughing. But then that compassion side of things. I mean, here is Peter who has now denied Christ three times. He hasn't gotten to interact with Christ again since that happened. And he is embracing the risen Lord talk about an amazing experience. That is the playfulness of Jesus. He is playful. So a personal experience. As I learn to hear the voice of the Lord and to carry on in conversation with Him, um, and if you read or if you listen to this and you start condemning yourself because you don't hear the voice of the Lord the the way I do, shame on you. Okay, not shame, because I don't do the shame and guilt program. But that's not the intent for why I'm sharing this. I'm sharing this with you to tell you that it's possible for you to have this dynamic of conversation with Christ. But one day I was taking a shower. Interesting, right? I'm naked. So I'm at my base level. I talked to Jesus a lot in the shower. I actually have another friend who says he does the same thing and I'm talking with the Lord and I'm actually brushing my teeth in the shower. I'm all about efficiency and I am just kind of chatting with him and, and I'm I don't even remember the context of what we were talking about. I think I was talking to him about the process of becoming a God, right? That you don't get to skip steps, right? And so as I'm contemplating that and I'm thinking on that and I'm realizing that, you know, that the magnitude of that, I kind of like in the midst of the conversation, it was almost like I thought in my mind that I put Jesus on mute for a second. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that means that if the Lord was once like me, right? The scriptures say, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become, right? And so I'm thinking to myself and I'm like, oh, that means at some point, Jesus and Heavenly Father, for that matter, passed through mortal probations and experiences similar to what I'm in now. And they had shortcomings. And I'm like, oh, Jesus had shortcomings, right? But in this conversation in my mind, I forget that I had invited Jesus into that space. So it's like I'm talking out loud in front of him. And he all of a sudden says to me, I can still hear you. And I was like, oh, uh, I'm sorry. And the next phrase out of his mouth, I will never forget. He says to me, We don't dwell on my past shortcomings because we don't dwell and pontificate on your current ones. And I laughed so hard in the shower with my toothbrush in my mouth that I spit toothpaste spit all over the shower. I was like, that was funny. True to form, right? A principle being taught but in the most hilarious and personalized way I could have ever experienced. That is my Jesus. All right. So the playfulness of Jesus is a real thing. Like I suggest to you and submit to you brothers and sisters in the name of Jesus Christ, that you can go to him and ask him to see his playfulness and he will show you. One of my favorite stories from, from The Beautiful Outlaw is John Eldridge tells a story about how he'd gone through a period of struggle with his relationship with Christ. And he was talking to the Lord one day as he was out hunting. And he said, you know, Lord, things have been strained between us for a little while, but I think I'm ready to basically get over myself and uh, repent. And he said, Lord, I really miss that you used to show me hearts all the time. I mean, I don't remember the examples, but, you know, Uh, he would see a heart shaped rock or he would see a heart shaped cloud or something. And he would realize that it was from Jesus. And he says it, you know, he's like mid thought of remembering that and talking about the Lord with, with remembrance of, of seeing hearts all the time. And an elder says he, he looks out of the corner of his eye, something catches his eye, uh, a gray object. And on the ground, there's a cow patty in the perfect shape of a heart. Now that is funny. Like if you don't think that Jesus is dynamic and playful like that, that he, that he isn't capable of being that way with you, then you won't understand or comprehend the character of God and you're going to struggle until you allow yourself to to let the fog and the veil of religiosity fall away from you sufficiently so that you can have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that, that that teaching this openly and out loud is going to put me further on the radar of the adversary because he doesn't want you to know the real Christ. But I'm good with it. I don't care anymore. I told you the boldness that I feel coming on in my mission and my pursuit of Christ is only going to get more pronounced. And that is because I look at his model, his life, all the elements of his life, even finding joy and having happiness. I've had more joy and happiness over the last little while because I'm learning, remembering how to be happy, even amidst trials. And that playfulness piece of Jesus is a piece that I believe is, is one of the missing pearls of great price in the character of Christ that we have completely disregarded and discarded and it needs to come back it really needs to come back it's not always serious with Jesus and sometimes Jesus is seriously funny all right so I'm going to wrap these last three uh, portions of Jesus these last three character traits of Jesus kind of into one because they all kind of fit together but how about jesus as cunning um, jesus is indignant righteously indignant or divinely discontent and how about jesus as an outlaw as a rebel um, this is jesus and i don't care what you say like no one can convince me otherwise and i would challenge anyone if you think you're a scriptorian or you know you're doctrinally sound enough to come and try to convince me that jesus isn't cunning jesus isn't indignant or righteously, you know, divinely discontent, um, or, or an outlaw, then by all means come do it. And how do I know that? Well, let's take Jesus's words. Oh, Tyson, you're going to go to the scriptures. Yeah. I'm not going to give something that some, somebody spewed over the pulpit as a half truth or philosophy of men and call it Truth. I'm going to go to Jesus' word in the New Testament and take him at his word about being cunning, right? And being divinely discontent um, and being a rebel and an outlaw, you know, and and the way that Christ says, this reminds me of something that I was taught a long time ago in my military training. And that is um, to basically be, I don't remember who said it, but it's a quote from somebody um, to be quiet and professional, but have a plan to kill everyone you meet. Um, and this is basically what Christ says in this verse, it's Matthew 10, 16. And it says, behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I love that. Um, I love that Christ is saying, be dynamic, right? Be cunning, be cunning and wise as serpents, and be as harmless as doves. And this is Christ telling us that we have a work to do, and we're not going to do it by being bludgeoning idiots and running in headlong into battle without thinking first. He wants us to be cunning. He wants us to look unassuming, and then he wants us to do his work, which is to do what? To restore the people. To bring them out of bondage. So let's talk about the cunning of Jesus. Let's talk about how he fashions a whip. Okay. So he is frustrated with the fact that the Sanhedrin of his day, right? The Pharisees and Sadducees are corrupting the house of his father. So he fashions a whip. It says in, I believe it's in John 21, um, but I can't remember. He fashions a whip. He makes a whip. Then he goes and cleanses the temple. Right. This is the dynamic nature of God, of Christ. That he cleanses the temple with a whip that he fashioned. This means, in my mind, that he is committing a sustained and purposeful act of violence. And in Matthew 21, uh, verse 12 through 14, it says this, and Jesus went into the temple and he cast out all that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer and ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Why don't we ever talk about that? We'll tell one side of the story, but not the whole thing, right? So Christ cleanses the temple and then he does what immediately? The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them amidst the temple that he's just cleaned, cleansed. That is the dynamic nature of Christ. He went from enraged with divine discontent and angry to a place of calm and power. And both were power. And with that power of compassion, he healed the lame and the blind. How about the indignation of Christ in honestly... I'm going to say this boldly in rubbing the rules of the Sadducees and Pharisees right in their face. There's no other way to describe it. He's rubbing the rules of the Pharisees and the Sadducees right in their face. Let's be honest and look at these two stories. First, when he goes to heal The blind man, right? He heals the blind man. We find out later in context on the Sabbath day, the first blind man. He he actually healed three, I think that we know of, and he healed them all differently, which is also the dynamic of Christ. He heals one with spittle of clay. He heals one by touching. And I don't remember how he healed the third one, but he heals each of them in a different way. Think about that for a minute. Does Christ always do things exactly the same way? No, because he doesn't treat you the way he treats me, right? So don't try to be a cookie cutter person and try to apply a cookie cutter religious process to becoming familiar with Christ because you're going to get frustrated. Go to Christ and say, Lord, teach me in your way. Lord, appear to me in your way. Lord, show me your playfulness in a way that I can receive it. Lord, this is a prayer that you can offer, right? Right. Lord, help me to be rewired so I can see you as you are. Help me to see your character in the fullness, right? The fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Think about that for a second, okay? The fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ is not a tree-hugging, sandal-wearing hippie. The fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ includes the principles of personality that I've talked about today, the characteristics of his personality, and many, many more. I'm only touching a few of them just to give you a flavor and a taste, okay? So back to the story of the blind man. Christ goes, steps forward and to the blind man, and before he can speak or say anything, his apostles are right there, and they're like, Lord, who did sin? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I can just feel the Lord's loving indignation as he says, neither this man nor his parents did sin. Then I can see him looking over the top of the heads of his apostles to the Pharisees and Sadducees standing behind his apostles because they were always there following him around as wolves in sheep's clothing, literally. And it says that in several places in scripture, if you go and read it, you'll see that these men disguised themselves as sheep, but inward they were ravening wolves, right? So I can see Christ looking over the head of his disciples as he's speaking. He looks at his disciples and he says, neither this man nor his parents did sin, but that the power of God may be manifest in him. And then he anoints his eyes with clay and tells him to go and wash. And the blind man receives his sight. And then we know I've described before. Uh, how there's a there's a court date set up for the blind man who was healed, and he's put on trial about how he was healed, and he testifies of Christ. Um, that is the dynamic nature and in the indignation of Christ. And let's review that the rest of that story really quick because I think it's powerful. So he the, the blind man is being cross-examined after he's healed and you know one of the pharisees in the background shouts out you know how can this man christ be of god for he keepeth not the sabbath day right and they're so concerned about checking their boxes of religiosity that they're looking past the mark that is standing in front of them or he was standing in front of them in christ how can this man cannot be of god for he keepeth not the sabbath day he just healed a blind man the blind man himself said nowhere in scripture do i know of where a man was that was blind was was made to be able to see and yet you ask me where this power where this man got his power right and you know they're calling jesus a sinner and they're cross examining him they bring the blind man's parents in And it says that they're not even really willing to give testimony of Jesus either for fear of what being cast out of the synagogue, brothers and sisters, let me pause for a second. And let me tell you what's coming. Okay. God is going to require all things from us. If you don't think that's true, then you don't believe Joseph Smith was a prophet when he said that the sacrifice of all things is requisite for salvation. He said it this way, he said, a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to raise man unto life and exaltation, period. We're going to be required to put everything on the altar. And when I have people coming to me who are like, my local leaders are doing this, things that the brethren at the top of the church are doing don't make sense. I'm like, well, how do you feel about that? And they're like, it it kind of makes me angry. And I'm like, good. Don't become bitter, though. Be angry. Feel that indignation. Allow the Lord to show you how to feel righteously indignant, to feel divine discontent, and then do the next right thing that the Lord wants you to do. Because we're here to topple the system of religiosity for him. He's not coming back until the last extremity has arisen. Christ is not coming back in his glory until the Jews are backed up against the Mount of Olives. We've got a lot of stuff that's going to happen that's going to be really difficult and terrible between now and then. So it's time to saddle up. It's time to draw a hard line in the words of Toby Keith, okay? It is time to stand up and be sovereign like Christ. Okay, that was a little tangent. Now back to the blind man story, right? So then they dismiss the blind man because they get frustrated with him. What are their words to him? Thou wast altogether born in sin, and teachest thou us. And they kick him out, right? They kick him out, and he leaves. Because they're frustrated, because they can't really do anything to this guy. Because they know they fear the people, which they admit in other places, right? In fact, we'll talk about that story here in a minute. But they can't really do anything to the blind man, because they fear the people. So what happens? They dismiss him, they push him out. He has an embrace, at least in the video version. I can't remember in scripture if he has an embrace with his parents, but he's there. His court date is over. He's walked out. The blind man walks out triumphantly after his court date. And who's waiting outside? No one other than Jesus of Nazareth, right? Your Jesus, my Jesus heals this man and then shows up to his court date, right? And as he's standing outside, Of this guy's court date. He is standing there. He embraces the blind man. And they're having a tender moment. And who comes out? Of course, the Sadducees and Pharisees. And what do they do? They do what they always do. They start popping off. Well, are we blind also? And Christ says, If ye had said ye were blind, ye would see. But seeing as ye say ye see, ye are blind. Right? And what he's effectively saying there is, you guys think you know everything. You think you have it figured out because you've developed a pretty religion that you can use to control people. And you say that you see, and so therefore you're blind. Because you don't have the humility to understand that you don't actually know who it is that is talking to you right now. You don't know that it's the Jehovah of the Old Testament, that I am. I am the Jehovah of the Old Testament. I am the father of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Moses. You don't know who is standing in front of you because you are of your father from beneath and I am of my father from above. And with that power, he dismisses these guys. He's like, away clowns, go away. I'm having a tender moment with someone who actually understands who I am and who loves me for the sacrifice that I have come to offer. Depart. And the Sadducees and Pharisees walk away. That is Christ. He came to topple a system designed to thwart agency and keep people from communing with him and his father and mother. That is Christ. He is a system toppling God who came to earth, who had to learn to walk, talk, feed himself, do everything that we have to learn to do. And then from that obscurity comes forth and sets us all free through his atonement and is asking you and me in the last days to topple the same system that's been reestablished in all of its facets. I don't care if it is if it is a secular control system built in or a religious control system built in, the Lord will topple all of those and he's asking us to do that work, to help bring truth And bring light and draw darkness into the light and topple the systems that are controlling people and then slaving people and set the captives free. That's why we're here. Can you tell I'm fired up? It's time. Okay. So another illustration, right? After the Lord cleanses the temple in Matthew 21, starting in verse 23, Christ is approached again by the Pharisees weird he just did something magnificent he he cleansed the temple and then healed the lame and the blind in the temple right he's really setting the neighborhood in an uproar is this the passive tree hugging sandal wearing hippie no no offense to people who wear sandals and like hippies right I'm I'm, I'm only making the point this is not a one dimensional Jesus this is the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ he is looking for trouble Tell me he's not. Prove to me with scripture that Jesus Christ was not out picking a fight with these clowns who were supposing themselves to be in charge. He was absolutely picking a fight. So here's our Jesus, right? He did, excuse me, Matthew 21 23. And when Jesus had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority dost thou do these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Christ, here he is, he is, here he is again, right? In his cunning nature, he's like, okay, boys, you guys want to play ball? Let's play ball. You answer my question, then I'll answer yours. And then Christ says, this is the question, the baptism of John, whence came it? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, will say unto us, why did we not believe him? So they know they're in a catch 22. Christ asked them the question that because of their hypocrisy, Because of the silliness of their absurdities that they leverage upon the people, they are now caught in the conundrum. And so they turn to him and they're like, um, let's just say we don't know. So that's what they say. They say, we don't know. We cannot tell. And Jesus said unto them, then neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he gives them the parable of the vineyard and says, a certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said, go and work today in my vineyard. And he answers and said, I will not. So the first son says he won't. But afterward he went and he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered him and said, I will go, sir. But he didn't go, but he went not, right? This son, the second son didn't go. And then Christ asked them the question, whether of them twain which of the two did the will of his father and they said unto him the first and jesus said saith unto them verily verily i say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of god before you do and i know i've shared this before this is christ picking a fight with the sanhedrin and then staring them in the eyes and saying The traitors, the people you call traitors among your people, and harlots, prostitutes, are going to get into the kingdom of God before you do. These are religionists. These are the quote-unquote church leaders of that day. And Christ sends them packing again. And then he turns around and finishes his sermon to the people, which is why he was there to begin with. One more story. The healing of the lame man by the pool. He approaches the lame man by the pool and he crouches down and he's like hey, why haven't you been healed? Why are you not yet healed? And the lame man says because I have no one to take me into the waters. And I've said this before and I've shared it this way before and this is my interpretation and if you don't like it, get your own. Right? Go to the Lord and get your own interpretation. This is mine. But I can honestly see Christ looking at him and whether he said it in spirit, spirit, or whether he said it out loud, I can see him saying, see those guys, not my disciples, but the guys behind them that are hanging out, lurking in the shadows, ready to tell on me for what I'm about to do. You see him? Yeah. Yeah. Lord, I recognize them. Okay. Those are the leaders of, of your church, aren't they? Yes, Lord. Those are the leaders of my church. Okay. Okay. Do they have power to heal you? No, Lord. They've never actually even paid attention to me and all my suffering. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm here to heal you. But when I heal you, I need you to be complicit with me. And I need you to help rub this in their face to show them that the power of God is mightier than their philosophies and their falsehoods and their false priestcrafts crafts and their, their priestly ordinance that does nothing. And the the lame man says, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then he grabs the the lame man by the hand and stands him up and says, take thy bed and walk. Christ knowing full well, this was the Sabbath day. And that they would persecute him or at least question why he was carrying his bed on Sunday, which they did. Says it in the verses in scripture, go read it. Christ did these things purposefully on Sunday. He, he healed over and over and over again with a crowd of mockers and a crowd of Pharisees and Sadducees watching him. And he would heal people with them looking on, on purpose, submit to you that in the full dynamic nature of Christ, he was healing that person for the person themselves for the believers that were looking on and also to get in the face and topple the system that was oppressing those people. And I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ, that it is true. We've only been taught one version of Christ. Oh, he healed these people because he was such a loving God and he came down to help them. True. But look at the context. Look at how many times there's arguments. There's people challenging him when he heals the man's hand. The Sadducees and Pharisees are challenging him. And he looks them in the eyes and he goes, you know what? I'm healing him for him. And I'm healing him for all those that my father hath given me out of the world that will believe on me because of this miracle. And I'm also healing him to tell you to pound sand. And then he heals him. That is the dynamic nature of God. It is not just that he wanted to show us that through love we can be healed. No, he was establishing order and preparing the world for his kingdom. And there isn't a church on the earth right now in operation in its fullness that is the kingdom of God on the earth. The kingdom of God on the earth is going to be established and we are here to help him establish that. But in, in order for that to happen, we have to take down the system of lies and the groups of people controlling people so that we can stand up as righteous people with God's power and build the kingdom of God on the earth and establish Zion. Okay. So therefore what? Well, in my estimation, That therefore what is going to be independent and different for each person. Everybody has to find out their therefore what. Why are they experiencing the things that they're experiencing? That is up to you. You have to go out and discover the why of that as an individual. But I can tell you the big picture of the therefore what is this. That we were sent here with an express mission. We were sent here with a forward and a preparatory redemption. To do what? To topple the systems that are currently holding people back from spiritual pursuit of relationship with Christ, to introduce them to Christ, then to leave them to stand, to learn to stand in their I am and to become a Zion person in their own heart so that they can join Zion as a kingdom of God on the earth. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, you've got to get unafraid, you've got to recognize that the reason you're seeing the things that you're seeing is because you're aware. You're spiritually mature enough in your process of eons of maturation that you're seeing these things and you're supposed to do something about it. We're supposed to call out wickedness and spiritual darkness in high places. You know, I had somebody calling me this week and they were kind of apologetic about the fact that they get fired up and riled up. And I'm like, don't apologize for that. Just don't let partaking of that bitter cup make you bitter. Right? I want you to hear something. I'm not bitter. I am indignant and I'm divinely discontent, but I'm not bitter. I have love towards God and all men. And I genuinely love even my detractors. I love those who are persecuting me. I'm applying those scriptures. It doesn't make me want to take down what they're doing any less, but I do love them. Okay? And that was the same with Christ. Okay. I want to read these verses because these verses are applicatory to our situation. Awake and arise to the awfulness of the state of your situation. Awake and arise. Okay? This is Christ talking to his disciples about the Pharisees, and he says this, Then Jesus said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then the the brethren, uh, reasoned among themselves, saying it was because they had no bread. And Christ is like two or three different ways, says, you knuckleheads, I'm not talking about bread. Okay, did I not show you that with the five loaves we fed 4,000? Um, five With the five loaves we fed 5,000 and with the seven loaves we fed, we fed 4,000? I'm not talking about bread. And then in verse 11, he says, How is it that you do not understand that I spake unto you concerning bread? I spake not unto you concerning bread, that you would be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then understood they how he bade them not to be aware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I've told you before. That Joseph's last dream, that prophecies from early brethren, to include Brigham Young, show us that we would see a day when we were led to the brink of hell, and we are there. And the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees has returned. Religiosity and the veil of religiosity has replaced the spiritual pursuits that Joseph And many of the early brethren and Christ himself have asked us to pursue. Go and read Doctrine and Covenants 84, 88, 35. Most of the Doctrine and Covenants, go and read them. And they are replicit with examples of how the spiritual, how the mysteries of godliness are manifest only in spiritual pursuit through the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost. I have had things revealed to me that I cannot share, because I am under solemn obligation from the Lord not to disclose them. I've also had things shared with me that I can't explain because I don't have words to under to even articulate them. And it's okay. I'm not saying that to be prideful. And if you if you're a detractor listening right now, well, as thou sayest, right? Yeah, I'm prideful. Okay, sure thing. Those who know me and know my heart, know that what I'm saying is intended to be used as something to help them to stand up on their own in sovereignty, with power and authority from God in fearlessness. Brothers and sisters, be fearless. And stop and think about it. If you're freaking out because you can't discern or decide or understand why the church is doing the things it's doing, why the world is going the way it's going, then you clearly have not understood why you're here. You clearly have not connected with Christ in the way that you need to in order to stand in the fullness of the measure of your creation and the measure eventually of the stature of Christ with his power holding you up so that you can do your mission. Let us not forget one of the most poignant and powerful things that Christ, the creator of the universe, said to us in our day in John chapter 14, verse 12. Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works I, that I do shall he also do. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ meant what he said and said what he meant when he said that we would do greater things than he did because he went to his father? Do you believe that the kind of miracles required to prepare a people for the advent and readmission of Christ onto the planet can be carried out by you and me? Because I do. But in order for that to happen, it wasn't just the healing works that he was talking about there. Do those works. We will heal the blind and help the lame to walk. And, you know, we will, you know, people will raise the dead, right? That's going to happen. But right now, we're not talking about just those works. We're talking about the works required to deliver the captives, to set them free. And in that process of focusing on delivering the captives, we're going to have run-ins with people who are Sagittal and Pharisaical. We're going to run into the modern-day Sanhedrin. It's already happening. I told you in the teaser podcast. I have a friend who was just excommunicated. I have friends who are being called in and their temple recommends are being hung over their heads. This is happening, Okay. Get over it. Do you need your membership? If Christ tells you, like, put it all on the altar and you hold back a portion and say, well, I need my membership in the church. No, you don't. If Christ tells you you're good to go, then you're good to go. If he tells you by the same token, stay, then stay in the church, right? Because we're going to need people that are battling this in and out of the church. And if you think that, you know, I'm out here trying to cause a revolution in the LDS church. Well, I guess as thou sayest, because the Lord did say upon his house, it shall begin. And it is time for members of the church who have the awareness that they have to get out of fear and stand in their I am, whatever that means. And just the nature of standing in your I am will cause the rifts and cause that scripture to be fulfilled where Christ said in the doctrine and covenants upon my house it shall begin. If you're standing in the truth and standing in what you know and doing the things that the Lord has directed you to do, the works that he's directed you to do, it's not going to be for the express purpose of toppling the system that you'll be doing those things. You'll be doing the things that Christ directs you to do because they're the things that are supposed to help you complete your mission and build Zion. And you'll be focused on building Zion. But because you're building Zion, it will bring the demons and other people out of the woodwork, literally. And they will come after you. And it's okay. I've had people tell me of recent, and I understand and appreciate why they're saying it. Well, I think you need to be careful because you really are dealing with some really heavy hitting people. I know that. I know that because of this, the, the, the Luciferian entrenchment in every organization in the world, and the church is not exempt from that, is such that there are people who will want to do me harm. I'm okay with it. I'm not afraid, right? I count my own life cheap. Why? Because I'm not afraid to do the works of him who sent me. I'm not afraid to grab you by the face mask and say, stop being weak. Stop it. You stand in your I am, in your sovereignty. Google those words. Google sovereignty. And just ask the Lord to show you how to stand in your sovereignty. You will do it in a loving way, but you will do it in a powerful way. Christ didn't ask permission of other people. He didn't need someone to give him some scriptures or a link to something they could read in order for him to understand more fully Christ did what Christ does, which is to be his, I am to be dynamic. Stop going to the scriptures to find the answers and do what Joseph Smith said. If you want real divine truth, you won't find it in books, go to heaven and receive divine teaching, go to the Lord. Stop waiting. I had this conversation with somebody yesterday. I'm so sick of people saying, well, I just can't wait for Zion to be here. Be Zion. That's the point. Zion is already in you, right? Let Zion come up from underneath. Let it start from the tips of your toes and rise to the crown of your head. Be Zion. And when I am Zion and you are Zion and other people are Zion, as individuals, then that Zion will be brought together and we'll start to do what it talks about in DNC 88, where it says, assemble yourselves, organize yourselves, teach each other pure doctrines, right? That's what I'm trying to do. Is this perfect? No. Are there elements of this podcast that I may look back at later and go, man, I didn't have that right? Probably. Probably. But does that mean that I'm afraid to share what I know now? Because I, I want to make sure I have it all dialed in and perfect so that I don't mess up and lead somebody astray. That kind of crap is exactly what Lucifer's counting on. For you to sit back, be small, think you don't have enough, think you can't do enough, think you really don't have what it takes. And meanwhile, he's over there with his feet up on his desk laughing because you're afraid to stand in your I am. You think the disciples knew what was going on? Hell no, they didn't. What did they do after Christ died? They went freaking fishing, right? And I love those men, right? Because when Christ appeared to them and he stood on the shore and he's like, hey guys, you catch anything, right? There's the dynamic Christ. He didn't come back to them and go, what are you idiots doing? Right? He met them where they were. Then he chastised Peter a little bit over some food. And he says, Peter, do you love these fish more than me? No. Right. But he has a beautiful exchange with them. He embraces them. He corrects them and he puts them on their course. And from that moment forward, Peter was the rock. He was the rock. He had a moment of doubt. He went fishing. Christ comes back. I told you, stop fishing. I love you. Get to work. And Peter was the rock from there forward. He was fearless If you just came back to the church, liken yourself to Paul, right? I have friends that have come back to the church just in time to see the church going completely nuts and sideways. And they're like, why did I come back? And I'm like, maybe because you're a Paul, right? Maybe you're a Saul. The Lord woke you up. He cleared your eyes so you can see. And now you've got a mission to do. Stand in your I am. Stop sitting around saying, well, I can't wait for Zion to come. Because when Zion comes, then it's all going to be okay. No, it's not. It's never going to come. Because you're going to sit there and say, well, when Zion comes. And God's up there like, make it happen. Make it happen. And how are you going to make it happen? Okay. This is my opinion on what's next for you. If you're listening to this right now and you have any iota of being confused about what's next, learn the character of Christ. And how do you learn the character of Christ? You start hanging out with Jesus, okay? You go on a walk with Jesus. You sit by the river and talk to Jesus. You read his words and then you say, Lord, what did you mean by what you said here in Matthew 11, chapter or chapter 11, verse 15? Whatever verses, that's not a real verse, I just made that up, okay, for the purpose of conversation. But like, ask him everything, and get to the point where he teaches you that you already have these answers, okay? Get that in your head right now, okay? Start with the end in mind, okay? Here's the end in mind. Here's what I mean by that. You've been at this for eons. If you're listening to this and you're still listening to me and you haven't been turned off by the fact that I believe, that I know that multiple probations and then eternal lives after that are true principles, if you're still listening and you also believe those things, then understand and know you've already been here. You've already done this. This is review, right? This has, you've already been in a world and done similar things. We're part of a soul group. We're here to bring Zion up from underneath. Awake and arise and arouse your faculties. Stand up in your I am, right? I love all of you. But when you come to me and people are coming to me and they're emailing me, you, you ask around what happens to people when they come at me and they're namby pamby and they're well I don't know and I just don't and I, I'm like knock it off knock it off get big be big you know I have a daughter and she is a, an absolute gifted athlete she was born with natural ability she was born with with an amazing aptitude to, to just play sports but she doesn't believe that she belongs in, on the court. When she steps on the court in basketball, she doesn't act like she belongs out there. And before her last game that she played in, her team was done warming up. They were getting ready to, to play. I called her over to the sideline. I said, hey, come here. And she comes over to me. Her coach is kind of looking at me out of the corner of her eye like, what's he doing? And I said, you need to do something. I said, I love you. You need to step out there like you belong out there because you do. And she kind of was like, okay, dad, you know, and walked off sheepishly. And I said, Hey, she turned back around and I said, I mean it. I love you. She said, okay. She walks off and she comes to the sideline a little bit later because they put her in the game. She didn't start. She comes to the sideline. She's standing there waiting to check in. And I said, Hey, she looked at me. I said, you belong out there. Some of the other parents around me kind of chuckled and it was kind of funny, but I meant it. And she stepped onto the court and she played the game of her life because she believed that she belonged out there. And brothers and sisters, I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ that the Lord has put us here on the earth now for a purpose, for a mission to reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth, never to be torn down again. And it's going to be full contact. It's going to be scary. You're going to have people reject you. You're going to have family come at you. But that's all part of the game that we agreed to play. You agreed to play this eons ago. And we're playing it. We're in the game. And are you going to sit on the sidelines while the enemy's fans are all jeering you because you're too afraid to check into the game? Are you going to stand up and go, No, I belong out here. This is my time. This is why I'm here. For this purpose was I born. For this purpose came I into the world. It's time to rise. You're already awake, but what good does being awake do if you don't actually get out of bed? Get up and get out of bed and go to work. I love you all. If that sounds harsh or too direct and you need some more chastisement, and, or you need some more chastisement, send me a message and we'll talk, but I'm going to refer you right back to Christ. I might give you some insights to help you better understand. And I'm not saying don't reach out if you're stuck. Okay. Cause I will help you, but I'm going to help you by turning you back to the Lord and, and telling you whatever it is that I feel directed to tell you by the spirit. And a lot of times it's not easy to hear. I had somebody reach out to me yesterday and they were lamenting their situation They're lamenting the fact that they're in a situation where they feel lonely. We all feel that way. You're supposed to. You think Christ didn't feel that way? Come on. Why do you think he went to the mountain so often to commune with angels in heaven? He had to. It was his way to recharge. He had to go up the mountain and connect with the the beings that he actually dwelt with in eternity. So that he could come back down and deal with the rest of us knuckleheads. Right? And yet he did it, and he did it lovingly. Okay, So tell me that Christ didn't deal with loneliness. He starred in that movie in a way we don't understand right now. So if you feel lonely, Christ is up there saying, good, stand up. I feel tired. Good, stand up. I'm being persecuted. Good, stand up. People are mean to me. Good, stand up. any excuse I don't even want to hear it you come to me with a legitimate question on how to connect better with your I am how to connect better with Christ let's talk but we're beyond the point of having persecution and adversity and then looking at it as anything other than good and part of the experience and part of the things that are going to make you stronger they're going to help you stand up and be unflinching when when the Lord does unleash those calamities. And you're going to be the one standing there in a crowd of people who's not freaking the freak out, right? Almost dropped the F-bomb. <laughs> you're not going to be the one freaking out. You're going to be the one standing there. Where? On holy ground, doing what? Not being moved, right? That's what you'll be doing. Why? Because you were sent here to do that. So if you're experiencing adversity now, good. You're supposed to. You're supposed to get beat up. You're supposed to have church leaders persecute you and bear false witness and all of those things. Don't get hyper-focused on the justice of that. The Lord will measure it out when it's time. Just understand the purpose for what it's given. Stand in your I am and keep doing your mission. All right? That's your pep talk. That is me doing my best to stand in my divine masculine as Christ would and tell you, let's go. It's go time. I love you. It's time to stand up. It's time to get moving. It's time to rise. Until next time, hurrah for Israel. And God be with you until we meet again. One more last second postscript just in case the meaning of what I was trying to convey in this podcast got last, lost in my last minute tirade. Pursue the spiritual relationship and reawakening with Christ. Ask him to show you all of the elements of his personality and ask you, ask him to help you feel them and you will. And I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ and prophesy to you in the name of Jesus Christ that this power will come into your life and that you will receive Christ in his fullness when the time comes. And that we will all have that blessed and amazing experience of standing arm in arm as he appears to us and gives us our final assignments in that last call meeting. I testify to you that this is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Hurrah for Israel.